Hello, everyone. You're listening to Slapdash, the podcast about history, art, science, and everything else. We're your hosts, Shannon Deaton and Jason Creekmore. Welcome to the show. On today's episode, we are discussing the Twilight Zone. I'm Shannon Deaton, and across the table is a man of sight and sound who exists just on the border of Whitley City, Kentucky, and the Twilight Zone. Jason Creekmore, how are you, man? (laughs) Or do I? (laughs) I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. Now, are you a figment of my imagination, or are you really here to do a podcast? I used to have a cousin that would say, uh, I'm a Fig Newton of your of your imagination. That just, you know, they used to just crack me up every time I heard that. That's good. Yeah. I've not had Fig Newtons in a while. They're pretty good. We, yeah. should, we should get some of those. So, Jason, today we're talking about the Twilight Zone, and this is something I watched quite a bit growing up. I've watched it probably even more here recently as we began preparing for this episode. And one of the things that sparked my interest in this episode was a couple of episodes ago, we talked about the history of mass hysteria. Yeah. And in that conversation, we talked about the monsters are due on Maple Street, which is an iconic Twilight Zone episode. And it's one that I've remembered throughout the years, one that I've taught as an English teacher, and one that definitely represents what mass hysteria is. So. <laughs> well, I, absolutely. That's a really good one there. When you're, you're referring to the one we talked about last, you know, a few ep- a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good one. So did you watch a whole lot of Twilight Zone growing up? I did, yeah. I, I remember as a kid, obviously, you know, it ran through like, what, the mid-60s, I think, kind of when it finished. 50s, 60s. 50, yeah. yeah. In, into the 50s, beginning the 60s. Yeah. So obviously it was on reruns for 15 years before I was even, you know, even born. <laughs> but I, but I, I remember as a kid watching that and just uh, thinking it was just so smart. Like even as yeah. like maybe like a middle school age kid, I remember thinking that this is just sort of different. Like it makes you think. It's not just like I'm trying to shock and awe you with like special effects and blood and and that type of thing. Yeah. There, there was a little more you know to the story typically, and so I absolutely loved them. Uh, watching them when I grew up. I did too. I thought the scripting of the show was just so intentional. I mean, nowadays you watch a sitcom or some sort of a television drama, and it seems like the the characters say a lot of fluffy things, and it's not as intentional. Right. But whenever you're reading a script of The Twilight Zone or watching the shows, it seems like every word counts. And it really had to because they were in, a, I think, maybe a half-hour time slot. Yeah. And they had to yeah. cut it down exactly to that formula. Man, it was a precise formula. Right from that intro, the black and white, I just remember the music, do 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 Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's different variations and iterations of that intro, but the thing that stands out most to me is Rod Serling and his voice and just yeah. the way he would come over top of that music and describe the Twilight Zone. It was equal parts thrilling and also kind of scary, I remember yeah. thinking when it, I was young. It was genuinely creepy, and I remember watching that, and uh, you know, uh, when the show come on, do you remember like all these objects that would just sort of float? Yeah. And the objects were so obscure and so random. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I just remember, because I remember like there's a picture of like a doll, like with a woman's hair, like almost like a wooden doll right. with a woman's hair sort of flowing. And, yeah. I, and I just always remember thinking, why's that there? <laughs> you know, that? and then there's just, you know, all these objects are just so bizarro, you know, yeah. but yeah, it uh, Twilight Zone definitely, you know, would get your attention like just the moment it came on TV. Absolutely. And it's a very novel show. It's one that was very important for its time. And just as a brief introduction, as we've discussed, The Twilight Zone is an American media franchise based on the anthology television series created by Rod Serling. The episodes are in various genres, including fantasy, science fiction, suspense, horror, and my favorite, 
psychological thriller. And I've watched a lot of those type of movies here in the last oh, few yeah. years. Those are movies that my wife and I really enjoy. Uh, and these stories would often conclude with a macabre or unexpected twist. And sometimes, oftentimes, there would even be a moral associated with it. And I love the twists. I think growing up, I really enjoyed reading um, the R.L. Stein Goosebump book series. Oh, yeah. And they were the same. You would go throughout the entire story, and you would think things were one way, and you would get to the end, and they were completely different than what you imagined. And that's that's one of the things that I think, if it wasn't borrowed directly from The Twilight Zone, it, it certainly has a <laughs> lot of interesting parallels when you go back and watch those shows. The original series was shot in black and white and ran on CBS for five seasons from 1959 to 1964. So we've talked a bit about the intro, but let's take a trip way back to that time and listen to the iconic opening of The Twilight Zone. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. Man, I love that music, and and I love just that whole intro. It just brings me back to a simpler time. <laughs> <laughs> that may be the most iconic uh, television music. I mean, when you hear that, I mean, people just across generations yeah. automatically know what what TV show that connects to. I mean, I'm sure there are some others, obviously, with some <laughs> theme songs and that type of thing. But uh, I'm not entirely sure there's anything more like widely just known instantly than the Twilight Zone theme. I've used that in conversation before, and I've heard other other people use it too. And everyone automatically knows what it is. So you know, if something weird happens in life, you might look at someone and say, "Dunna, dunna, dunna, dunna." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just uh, that I, music. You know? I know. In, in in my family, well, we we always go do 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 do. Yeah. <laughs> so it's it. the same exact thing. Yeah. Same thing. So the success of the series led to a feature film in 1983, a TV film in 1994, a radio series which ran from 2002 to 2012 various comic books novels magazines and many other spinoffs across five decades the series has been around forever and it's just really enduring the show has been revived several times once from 1985 to 1989 again in 2002 to 2003 and most recently in 2019 I've not seen the new version, the brand new. I haven't either. I think, uh, is it Jordan Peele? It is. Th- yeah, but I haven't seen it, though. Yeah. I'd be interested to go back and see how that holds up. I imagine it's not in black and white, which the black right. and white added a lot for me. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. So behind all of this is Rod Serling. You might call him the mastermind of the Twilight Zone. As a boy, Serling was a fan of Pulp Fiction stories. And Jason, Pulp Fiction gets its name from the type of paper that these stories were printed on. It was printed on pulp paper, Hmm. which was a very cheap kind of paper that was available at the time. And the more expensive papers were printed on gloss, and they were called glossies. So (laughs) just some random trivia for you. Uh, As an adult, Serling sought topics to write about with themes such as racism, government, war, society, and human nature in general. Serling decided to combine his multitude of interests into the critically acclaimed television show at a time when these topics were not usually explored. Throughout the 1950s, Serling became one of the most popular names in television. He was famous for writing as well as for his criticisms of television's limitations. He was oftentimes concerned with censorship, which was frequently practiced by televisions and networks. 
he was one of the first people to kind of speak out against the censorships right. on television. And as I was going back and looking at some of these classic Twilight Zone episodes, I'm always surprised and impressed by the way that he was able to tell a story without showing a whole lot of graphic detail. There's not right. a lot of gore. There's not blood, no. even though they deal in those sort of subjects sometimes. But he was really talented and clever in his use of cinematography and in writing so that he could get the same message across without visually having to show a right. lot of blood splatter. You know, it's sort of uh, is reminiscent of uh, John Carpenter. You know, oh, yeah. Halloween, there's not a ton of blood That's right. in Halloween. I mean, I think everyone sort of thinks that there is, but really there's not. No. And it's kind of the same thing here. You know, there a lot of things are implied and, and those types of things. But uh, he doesn't sort of beat you over the head with the, the, the graphics and everything. True. Rod Serling wrote two-thirds of the total episodes for The Twilight Zone, but other writers included Ray Bradbury, who wrote Fahrenheit 451, Charles Beaumont, Earl Hammer Jr., and Richard Matheson, which I just found out because you told me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that Richard Matheson wrote the novelization of I Am Legend. Yep, absolutely. And have you seen the movie? I have. Have yeah. you read the book? I have read the book and I watched the movie. The movie has Will Smith. came out several years ago. It's pretty cool. It is. It's a good movie. Uh, frequent themes on the Twilight Zone included nuclear war. I think we're going to talk about some of that yep. here in just a little bit. McCarthyism, which is the act of making strong accusations of treason without a whole lot of evidence. And mass hysteria, which we alluded to in the opening. Subjects that were oftentimes avoided on other television programs of the day. So, Jason, at this time, we're going to get into a conversation of some of our favorite episodes, maybe talk about the feelings we had associated with those, maybe some of the plot backgrounds. And we're going to begin with one of my very favorites, one that I hadn't seen for a while since I was a very small kid, but I went back and watched recently in preparation for this episode. And the title is Eye of the Beholder. It was in season two, and it was episode six. Have you heard of that title? I think so, but just because, probably just in, in, in preparation for this episode, or for for the podcast episode, I think I've seen this particular episode you're talking about, but I wouldn't have remembered the title you know, had I not just seen it on a list recently. You know? Oh, yeah. I think it'll come back to you. This is one that appears on a lot of those top 10, top 25 yeah. lists of all time. And the opening narration really sticks out to me, and this is one that I'll share from this particular episode. Rod Serling enters the scene, and he says this, Suspended in time and space for a moment, your introduction to Miss Janet Tyler, who lives in a very private world of darkness, a universe whose dimensions are the size, thickness, length of the swath of bandages that cover her face. In a moment, we will go back into this room, and also in a moment, we will look under those bandages, keeping in mind, of course, that we are not to be surprised by what we see, because this isn't just a hospital, and this patient 307 is not just a woman. This happens to be the Twilight Zone, and Miss Janet Tyler, with you, is about to enter it. <laughs> I mean, even, you know, even like the, the beginning dialogue, everything is just like, it's just on edge. Yeah. You just instantly become like just nervous. You, you're or nervous. And I'm drawn in. Oh, yeah. There's just something about Serling, the way he would walk onto the set and just interrupt a scene and he would be wearing this tie and this suit. Yeah, just always real quick, talking like this, you know, yeah. holding a very small cigarette. <laughs> That's what he would always do. Yeah, he, he was the perfect 1950s gentleman, <laughs> but he had a story to tell. And the plot of this one begins as follows. The story opens in a hospital, and the main character, Janet Tyler, has just undergone her 11th treatment in an attempt to look, quote, normal. Okay. Janet's face is wrapped in bandages, 
and she asks the doctor what her options are if the treatment does not work this time. The doctor tells Janet that 11 is the maximum number of treatments allowed before Janet will have to be isolated to another colony with people like herself. (laughs) So the state in this particular story definitely has a stronghold on wanting people to conform and look a certain way. Throughout the story, the faces of the nurses and doctors are always in shadow, or they're hidden from the camera by obstacles in the scene or low camera angles. Some camera angles are shot over the character's shoulders to prevent seeing their faces. And this is one of those things we discussed in the beginning where Rod Serling was just so good with cinematography. If you can imagine an entire episode of a show going without ever showing anyone's face, And he does it in such creative ways, over the shoulders, in shadow. They're looking out windows. And, of course, the main character has her face completely wrapped in bandages. So she's the only one that we get a direct shot from the front, at least in the beginning. Eventually, the doctor removes the bandages from Janet's face. And the viewer is left in suspense as layer by layer of the bandage is peeled away. And they literally just must have wrapped a bandage around a camera because it periodically shows you these (laughs) scenes of the unwrapping process. Right. And you see that you're as if behind, like, you're like behind. You are her. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of through a first person perspective. The doctor asks Janet to describe any light she can see as the bandages are being peeled away. And Janet mentions that the light she sees is gray. And whenever I was watching this as an adult, I thought, you know, maybe this grayness symbolizes something. Right. Because I, I want to look for things in the Twilight Zone. It seems like this is the type of show, the type of writing that probably has a lot of cool metaphors right. and things to tell us about life. So as she's seeing these bandages peeled away, she talks about this grayness. And this grayness might be symbolic of the gray morality involved in the show's plot. And we'll talk more about this here in just a little bit. When the doctor unwraps the last bandage, there's no change. Janet's face is exactly the same as it was before. Up to this point, we've not seen anyone's face in the story, so be reminded of that. Not Janet's and not the doctor's or the nurse's. The camera pulls back to reveal that by the contemporary viewer standards, Janet is actually beautiful. And the doctors and nurses are not. (laughs) The doctors and nurses have disfigured faces with curled lips and large, round, pig-like noses, big, bushy eyebrows. And there's a reason we haven't seen them up to this point. And this is the big reveal. Remember, we said that there's always sort of a twist at the end. Janet panics immediately, and she runs through the hospital. As she does, uh, large screens project the leader of the strange world we're in. And the leader's given a speech on conformity and how there's a need for even greater conformity. Sounds like this totalitarian government kind of thing. Eventually, Janet comes face to face with a handsome man. Again, by the contemporary viewer standards, he's handsome. And he tells her that he is going to take her to a village where she can live with her own kind. In other words, other people who are ugly, like her. (laughs) Right. He tells her that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, meaning that while some may find Janet ugly, others will find her beautiful. So I think there's a morality tale to be taken here. And if you go back and watch the episode all throughout, Janet's just completely distraught. She's sad. And you just really get the sense that, okay, whenever they pull this back, man, what's she going to look like? It's just (laughs) going to be something terrible. What's wrong? There's going to be a monster back there. But whenever they finally reveal that she's just normal and everyone else has a strange appearance um, by the standards of the day, it really gives you a lot to think about. And here's the closing narration that Rod Serling provides. Now, the questions that come to mind, where is this place and when is it? What kind of world where ugliness is the norm and beauty the deviation from that norm? You want an answer? 
The answer is it doesn't make any difference because the old saying happens to be true. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In this year or a hundred years hence, on this planet or wherever there is human life, perhaps out amongst the stars, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Lesson to be learned in the twilight zone. (laughs) Roll roll credits. Roll credits, man. And it just leaves you stunned. That's a good one. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that one. So, Jason, what's up next? One of my favorite episodes uh, is called To Serve Man. And basically, Shannon, uh, an alien race lands on Earth for the purpose of saving us from ourselves. So have you ever seen this episode? I don't think so. It's a really cool one. Uh, these aliens are nine feet tall, uh, have a really like enormous elongated heads, and they just sort of land like just all of a sudden and just like, dear earthlings, listen up. And, you know, <laughs> and, and it just sort of all kind of just goes, you know, from there. Once they land, you know, they, they address the world's leaders and tell us that they have technologies to uh, help us out, you know, to end famine, uh, fix the energy crisis, and even create force fields to prevent international war. Sounds pretty good. So far, so good, right? So a few weeks go by, and sure enough, all of these problems get fixed. And so all of a sudden, the aliens are super popular, you know, popular. And they're like, hey, man, what's going on? You know, how's your planet? And <laughs> everyone's giving high fives and everyone, you know, falls in love with the aliens. And so the, the head alien, he's at a press conference and he accidentally leaves a book behind. OK, you know, sort of where he was talking. And there's a young woman who works for the government and she begins to use a computer program uh, and algorithms and things like that to decipher the book, to try to translate the book into English. Right. OK. And she doesn't want anyone to really know she's doing this. So the young woman eventually discovers the title of the book uh, is called To Serve Humans. So she's like, well, that's exactly what they're doing. They're coming here. They're helping us. They're serving us. You know, life's never been better, you know, here on here on planet Earth. Still so far, so good. So, so far, so good. So uh, eventually, the aliens begin to offer humans uh, trips to their home planet to see like how, you know, what life is like there. And then they'll bring them back. And again, it's just all this big kumbaya. I mean, the humans love the aliens and the aliens love the humans and everything's great. Well, meanwhile, the young woman continues to decipher the rest of the book. And at the end of the episode, one of her colleagues is actually loading uh, into the spaceship. I mean, it looks like you're, you're at an airport and he's loading the spaceship and you have these, you know, massive nine foot aliens like, you know, all aboard. Let's let's go. <laughs> and so she screams out to her colleague and she says, wait, wait. And then the colleague looks around and he and she goes to serve humans. And he looks around and, and then she goes, it's a cookbook. Oh. No. <laughs> and she literally says that it's a cookbook oh. and he's like what and then you know so he tries to run away and the alien's like no no get on board you know and kind of pushes him on up the uh ship and then that's kind of really how the episode ends uh oh my god the, the final final scene is that this guy is sort of like in a sort of a semi-prison and he uh he refuses to eat because they are literally trying to fatten him up. Oh no, Hansel and Gretel style. It's kind of like a Hansel and Gretel, and so he he sort of looks at the camera and and almost sort of breaks character a little bit, and then and is looking at the viewer itself, like looking at the camera and and talking about just you know sort of what a mistake he had made, and you know that they shouldn't have trusted him, and what's he going to do, and so he finally breaks down and begins to eat 
uh, oh, after, no. he, and that's how that's how the uh, episode ends. But so the you know, the name of the episode is to serve humans, and so even <laughs> when she interpreted the title, everything was still great. And then it's just like out of nowhere, she's just screaming, "It's a cookbook!" <laughs> and they are literally eating humans on, oh, this, my on this planet to serve humans. So to how do you humans. serve humans? So you fly them back to your planet, you lock them up. Probably with some of that seasoning salt that, you know, I was actually uh, listening to uh, our restaurant podcast coming over here today. Oh, really? On the way. Yeah. And I was talking about all the the, uh, the seasoning that we got at, oh, steak, I remember that. at, at steak and Shake. <laughs> so I would imagine probably with that. Yeah, it goes well with it. everything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So uh, I remember uh, watching that a couple of years ago. I sort of like uh, got into Twilight Zone and sort of started, you know, going through all of them. And, uh, but I don't remember having watched that one until a couple of years ago okay and so that one was so crazy because just out of nowhere you know it's like they're <laughs> eating us and and that's that's sort of how it ends so that's a that's a really interesting one i love it good twist yep. so the next one i have is called nick of time it's from season one episode seven rod serling comes on the screen and he says the following the hand belongs to mr don s carter male member of a honeymoon team en route across the ohio countryside to new york city in one moment they will be subjected to a gift most humans never receive in a lifetime. For one penny, they will be able to look into the future. The time is now. The place is a little diner in Ridgeview, Ohio. And what this young couple doesn't realize is that this town happens to lie on the outskirts of the Twilight Zone. Well, I'm sure it does. <laughs> it, it would have to, right? right Otherwise, yeah. we don't have a story. Why are we talking? The about? story has to happen. That's why it's on the border of the Twilight Zone. So uh, one thing that I remember about this episode, and I watched this one many years ago too, is that it's got William Shatner. William Shatner's oh, the main yeah. character. He's Don Carter and his wife uh, is in it. And I, I just remember looking at that and thinking, man, that that's Captain Kirk. <laughs> it's, it's always Captain What's Kirk. What's he doing right? in the Twilight Zone? Right. Maybe this was a prequel to Star Trek. But <laughs> Maybe it was. <laughs> so the story opens with the newlywed couple, Don and Pat Carter, whose car breaks down in Ridgeview, Ohio. While they wait for repairs to be made to the car, they sit inside a diner called the Busy Bee Cafe. The diner has a fortune teller machine on the table, which answers yes or no questions for a penny each. So in a way, it's kind of like a Magic 8-Ball. That's not how it's portrayed in the story as being a Magic 8-Ball. It's like a little machine with, if I remember right, it has like a little devil head on the top of it. Oh, or really? something, just like a little something to look at. And you put pennies into it, and it gives you, you know, it tells your fortune with yes or no sort of answers like a like an eight ball magic eight ball would so the first question they ask is kind of in jest right they're just sitting there waiting for the car to be repaired and don asks the machine whether he will get a promotion at work and the machine answers it has been decided in your favor so what's don do he gets up he calls his office and he finds out he's been promoted so coincidence jason maybe could be so he asked another question following up on this initial success he asked the machine if the car will be fixed in the promised amount of time and the machine answers you may never know so don <laughs> keeps asking questions that one's a little bit cryptic and finally it's revealed uh through the series of questions that it will be dangerous to leave the diner before three o'clock p.m so he kind of goes down a rabbit trail of asking questions and eventually he okay. gets on this track where he's asking on the machine about the future and it becomes revealed that 
if he leaves before 3 o'clock p.m., there's going to be some danger to he and his newlywed wife. So Don starts to stall, you know, because he's nervous about this. He believes in it. He's bought into it fully. His wife, Pat, starts to get impatient, and she argues that the machine cannot really predict the future. And finally, she convinces Don to leave a few minutes before 3 o'clock p.m. The couple's nearly struck by a speeding car. When they go outside while crossing the street and a nearby clock shows that it is three o'clock PM. <laughs> so they rush back into the diner and after they <laughs> calm down, Don asks about the car again and the machine answers, It has already been taken care of. At that moment the mechanic enters the diner to tell Don that the car has been fixed. Eventually Don becomes obsessed with the machine and begins asking questions about where he and Pat will live and about their future together. Pat urges Don to stop and tell him and tells him that he is capable of making his own future. Don concedes and tells the machine that they are leaving to make their own future. As they exit the diner, an older couple enters and sits at the booth with the fortune-telling machine, and they look just completely disheveled. They immediately begin asking the machine questions about when they will be allowed to leave Ridgeview. So you can tell they've Hmm. been here before. Meanwhile, we see Don and Pat driving away from Ridgeview in their fixed car. So it's kind of neat. Hmm. It's, It's another... I don't know if morality tale is, is the, the right term, but it's all about making your own destiny right. in a way. Sure. Yeah. And I think it was important that the characters actually look at the machine and say, we're leaving. We're going to go make our own future. I think that might have been the key because right. this older couple that comes in and they sit down, they start asking questions about, you know, can we leave next week? Can we leave next month? And the machine's always like, no, no, you know, and they just start breaking down because huh. obviously they've left their entire future up to this machine's Just, prediction. Right. But, you know, the main characters, Don and Pat, by looking at the machine and saying, we're off to make our own future, the parallel there is that they drive away. Kind of break away town. from, right, yeah. Yeah. So the closing narration there from Rod Serling says, counterbalance in the little town of Ridgeview, Ohio, two people permanently enslaved by the tyranny of fear and superstition, facing the future with a kind of helpless dread, Two others facing the future with confidence, having escaped one of the darker places of the Twilight Zone. <laughs> hmm. Too good, man. That's cool. I, I've never watched that one. It's a cool one. I may have to go home tonight and, and watch that. Check it out. That's cool. So what's up next? Uh, another great episode is called Time Enough at Last. Uh, it debuted in November of 1959 and tells the story of a man named Henry Bemis, played by a young Burgess Meredith. Bemis is a bank teller who is a bookworm in every sense of the word. Uh, Bemis just constantly reads books, but in order to do so, he has to wear these tremendously thick glasses okay i mean he was if uh, if he was like a, a young jason creekmore at 16 he would have <laughs> failed his permit test like i did right <laughs> good uh so he's he's literally blind without his without his glasses but he he loves absolutely loves reading just reads all the time reads at work kind of gets in trouble at work because he won't really count the money correctly his wife jumps onto him he's like a bank teller he's he's a teller yeah Yeah. and uh you know he will he'll put up the sign like your next window even though he is working (laughs) and and he just sits there and reads uh he reads at home and his wife gets upset at him and she uh intentionally begins to mark through uh the books that he reads that was the sad part of that 
episode. That was very sad. That was kind of like just that's a little bit over the top right there. I mean, I actually felt sorry for him when, I, when I'm watching this. It's like a book of poetry. Yeah, and and she and she sort of baited him. She said, yeah. "Oh, will you read me some poetry?" And he's like, "Oh." Finally, <laughs> yes, I, yes, my dear love, I will. And he opens it up, and then it's all marked through. Then she's like, "That's right, it's marked through, and I did it." And it was so sad. Yeah, it man. was awful. And this guy's so upbeat. Yeah, I mean, it's the guy who plays the penguin. He's kind from of, the original right. Batman and, and, Adam West series. Yeah, and he's also Mick in yeah. in, in Rocky, you know, Rocky Balboa. <laughs> you know, so instead of saying, you know, cut me, Mick, you know, he, he could have said, cut me, Bemis, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> But Bemis lives a you know a, a very tough life. He just wants to read, but there's never enough time for that. You know, his wife is mean to him uh, at home. Uh, of course, his boss is not necessarily mean. He just really wants him to work, right? Sure. And but he just kind of sits there and just ignores everything and everyone around him and just continues uh, to read. The next day, Bemis is at work again, and during his lunch, he does what he always does. He goes into the bank vault to read. While he's in there, all of a sudden there is this massive explosion. Bemis gets knocked to the ground and he's sort of disoriented and he wakes up and you know moments later he comes up staggering out of the bank vault to find that an H-bomb has exploded and has basically destroyed everything. Now I thought this was kind of a little bit of a funny part in in, in the uh, the story or in the episode because he as soon as he gets in the vault he reads his newspaper and it literally says you know something like H bombs are dangerous and then like five seconds <laughs> foreshadowing. later yeah you know, foreshadowing for like five seconds right, and that's then all. and then you know, apparently it's dropped so Boom. yeah yeah so you know the, there are a, a few minutes where Bemis walks around you know sort of uh, amid the rubble and the smoke and so forth and he soon starts to consider taking his own life. Uh, moments before acting, Bemis notices the remains of the public library. Oh, dream come true oh, yeah. for Bemis. That's right. So Bemis quickly realizes that many of the books are still intact and becomes overjoyed. He begins to stack up the books and schedules times he will read them. Sort of like a kid in the candy store. He's like, oh, well, this stack is next month, and this stack is next year. Yeah. And he has everything lined out. <laughs> he has out. life planned out. He has, uh, I think uh, you know, it mentioned that he has enough canned food for the rest of his life. Yeah, you know, to he, live, he says so. he's not going to go hungry. He finds, I guess, whatever right. grocery store stock. Somewhere. Absolutely, and he's you know, so he's ready to go. And uh, you know, he looks at the steps leading up to the library and notices this this massive clock with the hands that are just sort of stuck forever. At, you know, at, at the specific time the H bomb dropped, and Bemis just smiles and announces, you know, finally time enough at last. So as far as he knows, he's the only person in the city, maybe on Earth, and he all he wants to do is read, right? He's away from his boss. He's away from his nagging wife who doesn't right. want him to read. So now he can read the poetry. Right. But then, unfortunately, Bemis stumbles and his glasses fall off and break. And that is how it ends. Tragically. It's, it's just like, okay, here are these books. I finally have enough time. I have everything that I need to make me just the happiest person in the world. And then all of a sudden, my glasses break. Oh. And he just keeps, you know, sort of crying. It's not fair. It's not fair. And, you know, one of the, you know, themes or, or topics, you know, during this uh, is that uh, Bemis has to sort of come to, to uh, terms uh, between the difference between uh, aloneness, you know, or solitude and loneliness. Mm. And I thought, I think it's interesting because at first, whenever he sort of stumbles out of the bank, I think he feels lonely, right? Because, right? I mean, yeah. you know, no one's there and he contemplates taking his life. And then all of a sudden he moves from that when he finds the books and that's sort of the love of his life and then he's like he's okay with just being alone yeah at that point just wants you know, to be in he's solitude not lonely for a yeah while. 
And so, uh, you know, he, he quickly changes that. But, you know, that, that episode is just, uh, it's kind of sad. It's kind of funny. Uh, it's, it really makes you think. Uh, to me, that's, that's probably one of my top five episodes. Yeah. The actor that plays Bemis is just so upbeat, even though he's, oh, he's being he's, a- antagonized yeah. the whole time. And that's what made me feel so bad for him. And my, my heart actually lifted for him when it showed that public library. Yeah, I was scene. like, all right. Yeah. yeah. The scene you said where he's like counting the books, he has a stack. He's like, that's uh, June. And, yeah, and that's yeah. July, and that's next year, and that's two yeah. years from now. And he's just smiling and kind of clapping. He almost reminds me of like a Batman villain in that moment, yeah. the way he's kind of yeah. giddy. He's sort of, just sort of jumping around a little, yeah. But then he drops his glasses, they shatter. I guess there's no uh, apocalypse optometrist that's going to be able to get those glasses <laughs> back. You see like one eye doctor like three miles away <laughs> staggering out of a vault, you know. You, it's, come here. It's so bad. And just the way he says, it's not fair, it's not it's not fair. fair. It's yeah. sad. It yeah. is. So, Jason, up next, I have a story, an episode called Five Characters in Search of an Exit. Okay. That's a pretty specific time. <laughs> it sure is. It's from Season 3, Episode 14 of The Twilight Zone, and it opens up with the following narration. Clown, hobo, ballet dancer, bagpiper, and an army major. A collection of question marks. Five improbable entities stuck together into a pit of darkness. No logic, no reason, no explanation. Just a prolonged nightmare in which fear, loneliness, and the unexplainable walk hand in hand through the shadows. In a moment, we'll start collecting clues as to the whys, the whats, and the wheres. We will not end the nightmare. We'll only explain it because this is the twilight zone <laughs> from this day forward anytime i'm like in the middle of just a really bad thing going on, you know going on in my life i'm going to refer to it as a prolonged nightmare <laughs> it never ends that's right must be in the twilight you know, zone i'm fo- i'm I'm, uh, I'm five cars deep in a drive through <laughs> this is a prolonged nightmare <laughs> right this is the type of story i think where the twilight zone shines because you've got five characters they're all in this room together and it's just one setting. They never change away, and it's just the interactions and interplays between the characters that just makes it so interesting. The story begins when a uniformed U.S. Army officer awakens to find himself trapped inside a large metal cylinder where he meets a clown, a hobo, a ballet dancer, and a bagpiper. They have no memory of who they are or how they became trapped, and they do not seem to need food or water. That's like a major plot point because the army major immediately starts to panic. And he's like, how long have you all been down here? Have you tried to get out yet? You know, obviously somebody has to bring you food and water. Right. And then the ballet dancer just kind of looks at him and says, "Uh, Major, do you thirst? Are you hungry? And he says, well, no. And I think it's the clown who says, do you feel anything at all? And he says, no, I, I don't feel anything. But that's not the point. Right. <laughs> we have to figure out. Because at some point we will need this. Right? That's right. Uh, each of the characters share their different theories about why they're in the cylinder trapped. One of them says, maybe we're on a spaceship. Another one says, maybe we've went insane. Someone <laughs> says, maybe this is all a mirage. Another one says maybe we're having a dream or that we're dead. And the major suggests at one point that maybe they're in hell. So it just kind of goes round and round. The army major, since he's the newest arrival, is the most determined to escape from the cylinder. He devises a plan to form a tower of people, each person on the other's shoulders, because they can see just the rim of the top. It's almost like they're in this deep well, Hmm. and they can see the light at the top, and there's a hole. And they keep hearing this bell ring repeatedly it's just this loud gong 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 just just outside of the cylinder and we'll 
have that explained here in a bit. However, once they stack themselves up, trying to climb up and reach the top, the dancer who's at the top of the tower is still just a bit too short to reach the opening. The major creates a grappling hook out of some clothes and his sword, and using the hook, he's able to escape the top of the opening. And when he's standing up there, the others are below, and they say, Major, where are we? What's going on? And before he can speak, he kind of topples over and falls into some snow, which kind of complicates everything. You're like, what in the world is going on? And then finally, the scene cuts to a little girl who's picking up a doll from the snow in the dress of an army major. The cylinder is actually a Christmas toy collection barrel for a girl's orphanage, and all five characters are nothing more than dolls. So the whole time this has been playing out, you thought these were real people. They're actually just the dolls that are contained inside of this uh, Christmas toy collection. So this is Toy Story. This is <laughs> this is the prequel to Toy Story. <laughs> the dark, <laughs> twisted Toy Story. That's right. Uh, a lady who is collecting donations tells the little girl to return the doll to the barrel. And then she goes on about ringing her bell, trying to get people to bring more donations to the barrel. And thus... The reason for the bell. Wow. (laughs) I've never watched that one. Yeah, it's twisted. The final shot is of the five characters now seen in their doll form with painted faces and glass eyes. They're just laying in the bottom of this barrel. And the creepiest thing, the ballet dancer moves to hold the hand of the major as her eyes fill with tears. (laughs) And that's how it ends. You got a friend (laughs) in me. <laughs> yeah, so somehow that that would have been the perfect we, outro. We, I think we need Randy Newman to start playing some <laughs> some fun loving music right yeah, there. Yeah, we do. Just just I'm tell us wa- how we I'm, can get back to normal life, man. I'm gonna watch that when I go home tonight. I've never watched that one. It's pretty good. They they do that ending scene really well. Uh, I don't know if it's the makeup or what, or if they just like superimpose the people's heads on actual dolls. But somehow, even by today's standards, it really holds up. Pretty that cool. Last little scene. And as things start to close out, we hear Rod Serling, and he says, Just a barrel, a dark depository, where are kept the counterfeit, make-believe pieces of plaster and cloth, wrought in a distorted image of human life. But this added hopeful note, perhaps they are unloved only for the moment. In the arms of children, there can be nothing but love. A clown, a hobo, a bagpipe player, a ballet dancer, and a major. Tonight's cast of players on the odd stage known as... The Twilight Zone. <laughs> That's good. That's pretty good, man. <laughs> That's really good. I, I feel some uh, Shakespearean yeah, right. yeah. vibes there a little bit. Cool episode. You need to check yeah. it out. So what's our last episode? I guess the uh, the final episode that I'm going to talk about tonight is one called The Obsolete Man, which uh, also stars Burgess Meredith, who we just mentioned right. a few moments ago. So the episode begins with Romney Wordsworth. What a name. It's I love an it. Awesome name. Yeah. Romney Wordsworth, a librarian, is called to appear before the chancellor of the state, sort of quote oh, unquote. The state. The yeah. state, yeah. So the meek librarian walks into this cavernous room and stands below the chancellor who is standing behind a podium and appears to be, you know, 10 or 15 feet above uh, this, this peasant here, right? So the chancellor declares Wordsworth as obsolete as books have been outlawed uh, for years. So he basically just says, the council has voted. You are obsolete. There's always a council. Yeah. Man, that council. And it's always the, the council, <laughs> the right? Council. Yeah. yeah. So Wordsworth begins to tell the chancellor that, you know, no human is obsolete. 
and that you know the, so they they get into this back and forth and finally the chancellor is like you know he kind of makes it known to the viewer that uh, religion is banned books are banned everything is is really just scientific and if you really don't serve a purpose you just stop living and you are obsolete you are obsolete in this quote-unquote state so eventually the chancellor tells the librarian that he will be liquidated within 48 hours oh no and that's the term he uses uh but they will allow him to select the method of his death and give him any reasonable request all right okay so the next scene wordsworth is at his little apartment taking a nap uh again poor little burgess meredith you oh, know man. just kind of kind of a lovable guy there uh when there's a knock at the door so he walks to the door and the chancellor walks in so that's really odd seeing the chancellor in this big official yeah. type of room and you know speaking with such a authority and now all of a sudden he's just in his apartment there so the chancellor kind of talks down to him like he always has and treats him as if his life is just you know totally insignificant so wordsworth tells the chancellor that he chose to die by a bomb and that this bomb has been planted inside his apartment and for his request the librarian requested his death be televised so sure enough, the state allowed for that to happen. So oh my gosh. he sort of points over in the wall, and there's there's like a camera lens and, and speaker and that type of thing. Okay. And so then the chancellor goes to leave the the, the room, and he wishes him not really well, just <laughs> gonna say. just goodbye, right? You know, you're getting ready to blow up, blow so. up into too many pieces, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> and so the chancellor finds himself uh, locked in. Oh And no. so he turns back to you know this the uh, librarian. He goes, "Hey, let me out." And he goes, "Nah." No, not today. He said, you know, this this is all about truth and about treating people, you know, the, the correct way. And so he walks over and he uh, pulls out a Bible out of a hidden safe. And he says, I have had this hidden for 20 years. And he said, it's the only thing of value to me. And he said, so I'm going to sit down and read this in my last few minutes. And so he sits down, opens it up, and just starts reading the Bible. And so the chancellor is sort of like walking around, and at first he's like, okay, this is enough. Let me out of here. I'm, I'm done with this. And then he tries to play it cool, like someone will see me. They'll come get me, whatever. And, you know, he, he even like uh, lights up a cigarette, and he sort of sits down, and he smokes, and he's trying to remain calm. And then you see the time starting to, to tick, you know, lower and lower and lower. And so finally, with like under a minute to go, the chancellor just sort of loses it. And the entire time, uh, the librarian just sits there and reads the Bible the entire time. He mm. never, never stops. And so finally he says, you know, please, he says, you know, in the name of God, please let me out of this apartment. And so Burgess Meredith, you know, uh, jumps up and he goes, I will be happy to let you out of this in the name of God. And he walks over and he opens the door and the chancellor runs out, sort of flings himself down the steps. And like three seconds later, you just see an explosion. Oh, my goodness. And so the next scene, the chancellor is on trial at the state. And they basically oh, because say, of religion? yeah, and they basically oh, wow. say because you, you know, uh, that you uh, spoke about religion and that you were basically a coward in front of the national television, uh, you are obsolete. Oh, no. And so he starts saying, no, no, it's sort of like the last, the last scene, sort of crazy. He rushes toward the podium where he had been standing, right. and these guards sort of pick him up and slam him down on this like. 100 foot long table and they start sliding him down this table and then a whole mass of humanity comes in grabs him and the camera angle changes
changes and you see like the, the camera sort of behind his head. And so, you, you know, you see him sort of like sort of like a slip and slide almost that he's sort of going away from the podium screaming. And as he's screaming, he's looking up at the guy who now is at the podium and the guy at the podium just raises both arms in the air and just goes, ah, it just kind of <laughs> screams. And then that's, that's it. Oh my and gosh, so, man. Yeah. And so Rod Serling kind of in, uh, sort of ends that episode by saying any state any entity, any ideology that fails to recognize the dignity and rights of man, that state is obsolete. <laughs> and that's how the episode ends. He's passed the death sentence so on I, it. I, I guess so, yeah. So I guess yeah. he also got liquidated. That's really interesting. Yeah. I like that. Cool episode. Yeah, really cool. So we talked about a lot of cool episodes. Of the ones you watch, right. which one really sticks out or you, you kind of like the most? Probably, probably the obsolete man. Yeah. I mean, of, of the three that I researched, probably, I liked all three of them, but probably that one. I, I like think. all such stories that involve dystopian futures. Right. That yeah. Have that 1984 Orwellian right. sort of vibe to them. So I'm going to pick one similar. I have the beholder. Again, it's civilization right. at its worst. Right. And you have the, the state kind of trying to control who people are and wanting them yep. to conform to a certain way. So pretty cool episode, Jason. So anything else to say on the Twilight Zone before we get ready to close out here? Uh, you know, I just have a, a a few minutes of a ride back home tonight, and it will probably be dark on my way home. <laughs> and I, I'm going by Cumberland Falls. You've got so, a lot to think about. So, yeah. So uh, love you, Mindy. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I hope I don't see Rod Serling on the side of the road. <laughs> oh, man, that'd be crazy. <laughs> it just pops out. <laughs> Thanks to all of our listeners who are following us each week. We encourage you to connect with us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram with the handle at Slapdash pod if you enjoy the podcast please share it with a friend and consider subscribing for more content that releases every monday thanks so much and we'll see you in the next episode <laughs> <laughs>